Welcome everyone. So good to see so many of you here today. Um, I'm Monica. I'm a doctor based in South Yorkshire uh, and a member of the MEDACT Economic Justice and Health Group. Uh, many of us here today will be set to see the true impact of the lives of our most vulnerable patients and communities of the cost of living crisis currently unfolding before us. From this month onwards, we will see the biggest squeeze on households in decades as millions are forced to choose between heating and eating. Inflation is at the highest rate for 30 years, stagnating wages and combined with incoming tax rises. These changes will be shouldered by the poorest among us in what's been called austerity by stealth. The Chancellor's spring budget doesn't do much to lift our hardest hit out of poverty and financial hardship. Over the last two years, COVID has taught us that health and the economy are intimately linked. The economy and economic policies, such as in welfare, work, in housing, have a profound impact on people's health and quality of life. The far-ranging effects of the COVID-19 pandemic and its response to it have drawn much needed attention to the systemic nature of the social terms of health. A decade of austerity policies and vast cuts to public finances have contributed to worsening health for people and communities that are marginalised by our current economic systems. In short, our economy is making us sick. But that's where we come in. The public profile of health is at a once in generation high, and this opens up a crucial opportunity for health workers to advocate for patients in marginalised communities who are most impacted by economic injustice. Those of us at the MEDACT Economic Justice and Health Group are organising for a people's economy. That's an economy that serves society, not a society that serves an economy. We're a growing group of health and public health workers um, organising for economic justice, and that's action to address the widening inequalities in health through economic system change. Our group exists as a space to support each other, uh, to understand, to engage with, and importantly, to take action against these issues. Before I go on, just to talk a bit about um, some of the work that we've been doing and to introduce our amazing speakers this evening, um, uh, just some housekeeping rules. Um, so next slide, Ben. So if everyone just make sure uh, the microphone is muted. Um, if you have any questions um, as we go on, uh, please feel free to type it in the chat and we'll be collecting them later for the Q&A section. And please keep discussion respectful. Uh, next slide. And if anybody has any problems with tech uh, during this webinar, uh, just please message uh, tech in the chat box. Uh, we have um, Ben, um, who's also in this call, um, you can message him as well. Um, next slide. Um, I'll introduce our speakers in a bit more detail. I just wanted to go through um, our work um, and we'll pass over to the speakers to share some of their insights and work in this area. Next slide. Thank you. So I'm very excited um, to present on behalf of our group, our recent publication of three zines. So that's three mini pamphlets uh, focusing on three key economic determinants and its impact on health. So that's secure housing, livable incomes for all and tax justice. We initially aimed for these zines. Uh, they were researched and written by, uh, by us. Um, 
we planned on offering these resources to health workers for those who are passionate about health um, to help understand um, and empower people to have discussions about these issues with colleagues at work, with friends and family. Um, it provides some examples and solutions within each campaign area to draw inspiration from. Um, it provides an informative resource for those looking to fight against economic and health injustice. Um, and ultimately, we hope to use these resources to develop our campaign work going forward as a group. I'll just spend sort of the next five minutes or so just uh, summarising the uh, content of each of the zines. And they are published on the MEDACT website, so do check them out if you haven't already. I'm sure we can um, share a link in the, in the chat as well, so you can check them out. Uh, next slide, please. So our first zine uh, is a public case for livable incomes for all. So within this, we talk about social welfare and employment. We explore how our economic system is characterised by gross inequality, where millions struggle to survive on insecure, poor quality work in a, content, uh, in a context where social welfare measures have been dismantled. We set out some ways in which people's uh, health are affected by the way our economy is structured. One of them being outsourcing the gig, gig economy and precarious work. I won't say too much about this because we have a, a wonderful speaker later, Abigail, um, sharing her personal experiences of this and some recent successes as well. And we also go on to talk about social welfare and sick pay. We have some of the lowest rates of sick pay in Europe and we face huge cuts to our social welfare system. And our universal credit system has been linked to severe mental health problems, depression, anxiety, and has even been linked to suicide. We finish with how our economic system can improve health and well-being, uh, such as ensuring workers' rights and adequate protections for all, um, and uh, some solutions to support universal support systems like universal basic income and services. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, it's just uh, a few points summarising the content um, of the zine. Uh, next slide again. Our second zine is the public health case for secure housing. The housing system in the UK is broken. Currently, we've got 1.6 million households on so the social housing waiting lists, and millions more are struggling to meet unaffordable rents in the private sector. UK homes are uh, increasingly becoming crowded and are some of the most poorly insulated in Europe. Uh, within this scene, we sort of outline how poor housing um, impacts on our health. Um, if you go on to the next slide, Ben, uh, the next slide after that. Uh, thank you. Uh, we've got this wonderful diagram that one of our members um, created. And it's just a useful uh, thing just to remind us about the impacts of poor housing, overcrowding, um, internet access, um, the unaffordability of rents and how this impacted on people's risk of acquiring and getting ill from COVID. So really important to, to remember this and a useful resource when trying to speak about how housing impacts our health. Uh, we then go on to summarise some short-term and long-term solutions uh, with a focus on structural solutions such as ending the Section 21 no-fault evictions 
and we provide links to further organisations in reading. Next slide, please. And finally, uh, the public health case for tax justice for all. Redistribution is essential for economic justice. Uh, we've had some very interesting discussions as a group, um, including how we often find that there's a tension between uh, focusing our attention efforts on the everyday struggles of the most vulnerable in society versus the abuse of power by the most wealthy. And just to be clear, we're not so much talking about tax on unhealthy foods, cigarettes and alcohol, uh, important public health measures as they are. Uh, in here, in this scene, we talk about the tax system at large. So for example, over uh, uh, lockdown, uh, throughout the, the COVID pandemic, um, we've seen that the wealth of UK billionaires has increased by 650 million pounds. Uh, we've seen that tax loss in the UK is about 18% of the health budget, uh, which is equivalent to paying the yearly salary of 840,000 nurses. Uh, we outline and summarise why inequality or wealth inequality is a problem, both for public services and investment in health systems, but also for democracy and our ability to, to feel in control of our lives and our health. And with that, we'll move on to our speaker. Um, our speakers will speak for around five to seven minutes each. Um, we'll then move on to a QA. and a um, So we're aiming by around quarter to eight, 10 to eight uh, for the Q&A to begin. Uh, and throughout this, just uh, think about your questions and type them in the comment section and we'll pick them up later. Uh, but without further ado, really excited to introduce Guppy Bola. Next slide, please, Ben. Uh, she's a researcher, strategist, um, an organiser and co-founder of Decolonising Economics. Uh, and she'll be speaking about the interconnectedness of these issues and what health workers can do. Over to you, Guppy. Great. Thanks. <laughs> my partner just came into the room and I was like, get out. <laughs> Sorry, if you saw me <laughs> turn my head briefly. Um, hi, everyone. I'm going to be as slick and uh, as fun as possible. Um, it's really, it's always an honour to be like invited back to MedAct events because I'm such a cheerleader of this particular area of work and I'm really excited about the work that this programme is going on um, and the booklets in particular. Um, I might be familiar to some of you, but I'm just going to give you a bit of my background. Um, and as mentioned, my, my name is Guppy. Um, I'm a health justice activist and strategist, and I've been involved in lots of different uh, outfits and groups, um, which, you know, we can chat about later. Um, but maybe just a bit about, to share a little bit about how I got here. Um, and I'm also really excited to learn a bit more from you guys if you want to share in the chat box about like why you're here or what got you here. Um, I got here from quite a long and winding series of events over the past decade, which actually began in 2005, so it's like a little bit more than a decade ago, uh, when I had just failed my result, uh, just failed my uh, resits on my first year in medical school and was standing in front of the results board realising that I wasn't actually that devastated at the situation of not going back into medical school. And I stuck through uni by just doing a kind of whatever science degree I could get into. Uh, but spent most of my time doing as much organizing, campaigning um, and going to events as possible. And I only realized kind of a year into post-medical school that um, 
what I was being motivated by was like really uncovering and understanding the systems that determine the world in which we live. Um, and that kind of came about by reading a chapter on neoliberalism in the Global Health Watch, Global Health Watch 2, in fact. Um, but it wasn't actually the kind of like academic or intellectual pursuits that motivated me. It was reading that chapter and having a framework in my mind about understanding the, the context in which I had grown up in um, and in which I lived and really situating myself and my experience and my community experience in um, what was shaping the health of those around me. So I began to reflect on the patterns of inequality that I observed um, from the places I'd grown up in or lived or worked between East London to Oxford and in Glasgow. And in that period of time, I'd moved in and out of cross-class multiracial communities and becoming ever more curious about the sort of the sicknesses that existed and the patterns across generations, particularly in the South Asian community. Just being completely unsatisfied by the uh, answer that just some groups of people um, this is what I was told in my public health masters, just some group of people were like more susceptible to getting sick than others. And I got fixated by the popular definition of health inequalities, which is of course that inequalities, health inequalities are unfair and avoidable. And it wasn't long till I understood that unfair and avoidable circumstances were the result of political choices. And that helped create the perfect conditions for the ill health I saw around me. So it became my mission to uncover what was driving these choices, not just the social determinants around us and what was affecting health, but literally the choice, the political choices that were being made and how the economic structures uh, around us were making us sick. And just sticking with that belief that this existence is not inevitable and that it could change. So I just want to share a little bit about that this evening. Um, and I said to Geordie last week when we spoke that this is an, an incredibly timely event, of course, on the eve of uh, yet another form of economic punishment being slapped on working class families, um, which is really unimaginable given all of the context that's just been laid out around us. And also what we already know about where we are in terms of child poverty and health inequalities in that of all the gains we've made over the last century, the past decade has seen a stalling and in fact a decrease in both health expectancy, poor health out, or health outcomes, um, and uh, years lived in ill health. And it, it's amazing and terrifying at the same time, but how little time it's, that trend has been shaped uh, purely by the direct influence of economic austerity policies. And it's just something to, to reflect on um, as I go into the next few minutes. So I always begin these little talks on the intersection between the economy and health by returning to the etymology of the word economy uh, just to get again that sense or that framework in our head about these sort of multifaceted quite complex issues that we have to grapple with and it's always worth having that structure in your in our minds to to really think about this information and, and, and interrogate it so too often we conflate economics with some kind of mystical science or an institution that is solely related finance but it's important to remember that the economy is not objective or rational or actually even a science. It's developed that way by the Western obsession with a line going at 45 degrees through a graph. The economy is actually very simple and it begins at home. The word eco is a Greek word for home and nomi is simply the term for management. So therefore economy is derived, uh, is describes, describes the home and management of the resources and relationships in a space. Over time, the economy became a system that reflected power in society, 
designed by a very particular group of people with social power for their benefit, much like today's parliament. Power has been embedded into the economy, first through theory and then through centuries of practice. And this system, designed by a bunch of white guys in wigs, sought to create profit through the exploitation and extraction of land and people. Extracts from the land in the form of fossil fuels, minerals, industrial agri-farming, and exploits through people by the discrimination, enslavement, unsafe work, insecure housing, and polluted hair of our environment. And this is why I often refer to the system as the extractive economy, and you refer to it as anything you'd like, be it neoliberal capitalism, racial capitalism, just capitalism, end stage capitalism. I feel like extractive kind of is a catch-all for all of that. Um, and if you want to learn a little bit more about the extractive economy, I, I yeah encourage you to go to Movement Generations report from banks and tanks to corporation caring, which is where I gained a lot of this. Uh, well, I just everything on here is from them. <laughs> um, but what gives me hope and I guess feels a little bit exciting is that because the economy could be anything we wish it to be, uh, I'm motivated, motivated by the idea that we can collectively transform out of the extractive economy by getting smart about how we organize and apply pressure. And as health professionals concerned about health and the well-being of people, I feel like we have a responsibility to support this transformation of the economic system and advocate for its purpose to really center health and that's why this series, this series and this like space is really, really exciting. Um, hopefully you've had a, can I get a time count as well in case I go over? I've got about two more minutes. Um, hopefully you've had a chance to read the books, but I just wanted to focus on, you know, this amorphous power system, the economy has to function in some way and have some real material impacts on people. And I really love the, the decision to work on these three areas because each, the system has to have or be held by an institution in some way and the institution is where we sort of interact with this amorphous system the economy um so thinking about tax that fits within the financial institution and the financial institution because it's motivated towards profit and particularly wealth accumulation of certain groups of people is designed for power to to uh, to support the power of certain groups of people and so interrogating the tax system and who it benefits is incredibly important particularly when we think about where wealth and resources are redistributed in society the word tax is actually from the greek word to see which is to fix but you know we could fix it <laughs> in a different way similarly with land uh the sort of there's a real history of land uh um how land has been distributed to elites um, and how in sort of modern uh, past, it's been also really, yeah, heavily privatized and enclosed, um, making it much harder for particularly Gypsy, Roma and traveler communities. And of course, increasing levels of homelessness in um, working class communities. Uh, and then finally with work um, being the kind of like institution of um, that supports and uh, determines what income you have, like we have so many or yeah, a real uh, influence on income and um, in work poverty. That is just something that completely goes against the kind of ethics of work and, and what the workplace is and what it's supposed to do. So just thinking about how useful it is to think about those kind of columns or institutions when you read these booklets and, and thinking about the other institutions that might be at play um, within that. Okay, final bit. Uh, so I just wanted to think a little bit about our shared strategies and collectively organizing. And I want to take some inspiration from a good thing that happened this week. 
some of you might already know that in the past week, the first ever union of Amazon workers was legally recognized in the US, despite Amazon resorting to insulting, arresting, and unfairly dismissing their lead organizer. And as I've been following these organizers for a while, it felt significant that on March the 30th in 2020, during the first organized walkout, Christine Smalls, the lead organizer, held up a sign that read, our health is just as essential because he was organizing against unsafe working practices and lack of protection that Amazon workers um, in the factories were being enforced to work in. It's also felt significant that the spaces that Christian organized workers relied on shared meals and barbecues as a point of cultural and emotional connection and nourishment of one another, a fundamental of the kind of caring economy that we would like to see. It feels significant that even the most cynical of his peers in the factory voted for union recognition because in her words, the humanity at Amazon had gone. Humanity, the very thing that this economic system has managed to strip away from us and that we have needed to relearn as a form of solidarity with one another. And that image of Christine holding his sign reminds us that those who are experiencing the worst of the extractive economy are very, very aware that the scars of poverty are worn on the body. It also reminds us of what the health uh, for the Green New Deal paper expressed, an economic system that is making us sick. And friends from Healing Justice London, and I say this very often, say that the body is a site of knowledge and it is in centering the body and its health that mobilized Christian and his co-workers and is what should be mobilizing us around economic justice. And finally, 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 <laughs> uh, just three things I wanted to share about the organizing work and the thinking about when we're hearing the amazing speakers that are to come. You do not need to be an expert. The sense that something is unethical and unjust sits in our guts and does not need you to understand the plethora of kind of confusing ideas around economic systems and theories that we are thrown, uh, that are thrown at us. You should be motivated by solidarity. Always, always, always think about power, your power, the power you're trying to challenge on the power of others collectively. And that the practice of organizing in itself is really a form of medicine. And it's hard, you'll get into disagreements, there'll be conflict, but all of that is part of the transformation that we all need to go through and we need to get comfortable with. And actually being together and caring for each other and being committed together is what will feed us and heal us, um, which is part of the work that we need to do, not just in transforming the system, but transforming the impact it, the system has had on us as individuals and as communities. Thanks. Brilliant, thank you so much Guppy for that, that was amazing. Uh, it's really important to definitely bear in mind that uh, the things that we're seeing is a, as a result of political choices. It's not a natural uh, thing. And uh, these are things that can be changed. And I think that segues quite nicely into our second speaker. I'm really excited to uh, welcome um, Abigail Achampong. Uh, she works as a cleaner at the Royal London Hospital. Uh, she's a UNITE representative and a key leader in the campaign that ended outsourcing in England's biggest NHS trust. Uh, thank you so much, Abigail, for joining us today. I'll hand over to you. Thank you, thank you very much. Uh, good evening, everyone. My name is Abigail, as you have already mentioned. And I work at Royal London Hospital. With, uh, during the COVID, all of us as a cleaners were there. They did not separate that you are a cleaner, so you cannot be able to work in the pandemic, you know, stay home or work from home. You have to be there. And looking at it, we got to see the risks that involve 
but the pay that they were paying us is not enough because why? They have given us to circle, which is outsourcing. And we are paying low because we are not a member of, you know, the bad trust that they will look at our pay and, you know, increase or do anything about it. And with this work that we are doing, because it's, it's difficult to live in London with the, you know, the rent, as you said, the rent and then the food, the, 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 the problems around you here, the cost of transport, everything involving is, is very expensive. But you are working as a full time, but you don't earn the money that can even look after you yourself. So we, 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 we were struggling about this and say, what can we change about this situation? Because we have been working, but we are still, you know, suffering that you have to take extra job to be able to, you know, pay your rent or, you know, have enough food on your table. And looking at the, the as the first speaker was saying, your health is important, but we don't have a time because what you are earning from the full time as, you know, looking at the bad trust that somebody will thinking you are working there so you are earning money but it's not enough for you and your family so you have to take extra work which is you know taking another job then you don't have a, a time for your family you, you don't have a time for your children you cannot even help them to do their homework and after that you have to think about your health because working you know, 12 hours a day, 13, sometimes, you know, 14 hours on weekend, and you are not paying enough. The stress that you are going through is having the impact of your life. And as, you know, we were talking about the, the economy, looking at it, some of the Black, you know, Asian community, we are suffering more because if you look at the pandemic, it was Royal London, you can see that. They are the majority that die there because of the, the condition that we are in. And you feel like you are working, but you are not earning much. And who is responsible for that? It's the bad trust. It's the people that they are on the position, the authorities, those who have made a decision on your life, actually to tell you that this is the money you have to live on. You are working with your own sweat, but you can't earn money that is enough for you. So we sat down and see that it, this is not, you know, helping us. So we need, you know, a, a, a unite, like both of us have to work together and achieve something from this. So if we look at it, Unite was there to help us and we have to make a decision that are we willing to change what we are going through? The United can be there, but if people are not willing to change or challenge, then the change will not happen. So we make those decisions and through that decisions, we did the balloting and then, you know, we have 98% to go on strike. And we, we, we have this speaking to the circle about negotiation, our changing of pay, they don't care because what they care is their money, what they are earning, the profit that they will make, not your health. 
So you have to think about your health, the impact, your future, your children, your family, everybody, you have to look after yourself. So we say, okay, if this is the case, then the decision has to be made that we are going to take industrial action. And organizing that is not easy thing to do, you know, to speak to people that you know that they fear that if, if they go on strike, they may not earn money to look after their family, which is they will be more, you know, suffering. But this is life that sometimes you have to make a decision that it will affect you, but that will make a difference. And by making a difference, not only you, it will help others. If you look at our strike, it was uh, whips crossed, bats, and then Royal London that we took that decision to ballot to go on strike. But as we got to the end, it has helped Newham, it has helped my land. So this tells you that when you are activist or you are starting something, it's not only you, it helps others, it changed others' life. So we have done this and through that there was a lot of struggling about it, your mental health, you know, how to control things. But we, we, we went through that and, you know, we thinking of coming back in-house, that was our main objective, that even if they do not increase, we want to go back to NHS and from there we will know what to do. And with this strike, the first two weeks, you know, constantly, we were out there with the rain, everything. It was very challenging, but we, we make the decision that we have to do this to change things. So I'm seeing that when we come together, we have the power. As you said, the, the politicians have the power who are making the decision, but you too, you know, I'm a cleaner. Uh, but I have to take this upon myself that I need to do something to make a change. It doesn't matter whether I'm a cleaner or whatever position, it's the difference I want to make. If you have that you know, mentality to change things for good, then I'm thinking that you are doing something good for humanity. So we made that decision that, okay, let's go out and see. And the way the people came out for the strike, you know, but knew that if he does not bring us back, they, they are not going to have peace. And all of us that we went out, the first two is the second one, it, it was going to be a greatest, you know, ever strike maybe it has happened in, in the health sector. Because I wouldn't know how many people they will be at work at Royal London. And but new days, so they, they, they have agreement with us finally that they will bring us back in-house, which is 23rd of uh, 2023, 1st of May. We will back in-house. All the holidays that you know, we were not getting, they, 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 they have added to our holidays, the back pain that they were not giving us, they have given us. So a lot, a lot have changed. But what I'm saying is this have changed because somebody took upon itself and then said that I will lead. 
even though it will affect me one way or the other, I want to make a difference. By doing so, now, as we all sitting here, you can hear the news that, you know, this is the bigger, you know, the, the, the strike action that we have taken in England and, you know, health workers have won. About 1,800 staff that we are going back in-house on the 1st of May, 2023. So I'm happy today to, you know, encourage you guys that whatever you are doing, don't give up. It's very, very good and it will help one way or the other. So I'm thanking you for giving me this opportunity. Thank you. Thank you so much, Abigail, for sharing your story with us. I think we can all give Abigail a round of applause uh, for her victory. It's incredible um, and amazing to, to see how people, when they come together, they can really change things. And yeah, amazing work, Abigail. Thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, moving on to uh, our next speaker, who have also been working hard um, in campaigning uh, against poor housing. Um, we have two speakers from Housing Action at Southwark and Lambeth, um, Izzy and Fosia, um, who will speak a bit more about their experiences and share their stories as well. Um, just a reminder for everyone, um, if you can just post your questions in the chat box as we go along. Thank you. Over to you. Hi, so I was going to kick off, but I think Fosia is breaking her fast in a few minutes. Do you want to go first, Fosia, and then I can go after you? Yes, okay, thank you, Izzy, thank you. <laughs> um, we have prepared two case studies, and um, even though we have more cases that we're dealing with at the moment, the first case study is uh, Edith case study, a recent case study with a happy ending, demonstrating uh, the importance of good medical letter. In December last year, Edith's uh, five-year-old daughter was hospitalized, hospitalized with end uh, with uh, a stage and um, stage with. with uh, and stage kidney failure. Her daughter spent almost two months in hospital, also in intensive care. But um, later on, she was discharged back to the family, family's uh, two bedroom flat. And uh, the, the two bedrooms were really uh, small. And uh, the daughter has to share with her teenage daughter or with her teenage sister. And the two girls were already overcrowded in their small two bedroom. Um, also, they had a dialysis machine and boxes of medical supplies. The flood was already um, uh, severely overcrowded, but also with the machine and medical boxes, you can imagine. Also, the family were reporting and saying that the cold was so extreme that they couldn't tell the difference between outside and inside the property. So uh, a hospital a support worker wrote a brilliant letter and detailed outlining the daughter's health condition, why the current housing was uh, very unsuitable and the criteria for suitable housing. We helped the family submit this to Southern Council and also, you know, after some delays, um, which has to be, we had to be, make complaints and follow it up with the council. They finally have been awarded with the high medical priority that the family desperately needed on the, uh, to join the housing register. They were quickly able to bid for three bedroom permanent council home. They collected the keys and signed the contract last week. 
And the second case study is the Veronica's case, uh, the failure of Lewisham Council and lack of support from medical professionals. Veronica's 10 year old has um, a cerebral palsy and is in a wheelchair. The family were made homeless and uh, were housed in temporary accommodation by Lewisham Council. The family were moved numerous times in different temporary accommodation. They spent, spent two and a half years in temporary accommodation on the first floor. And uh, Veronica had to carry her daughter up and down the stairs herself. This was dangerous for both Veronica and her daughter. Uh, Veronica developed back pain as a result of this. The family uh, are sp Spanish speakers, so they faced language barriers and discrimination from the council, and the family may simply not have been aware of their rights or how to enforce their rights. Eventually, uh, Lewisham Council moved them to another temporary accommodation flat on the ground floor, but this was still one bedroom flat for a family of four. The family only found our group recently and we helped them to find lawyers to take their um, housing case. They were recently able to bid for a three bedroom housing association, which is fully adapted with a wheelchair lift and other so also other adaptations. In both cases, the mothers were in tears uh, at the final viewing of their decent home for their, for their daughters. But they should have never had, you know, faced this struggle for, for uh, suitable housing in the first place. Every day that someone suffers in a bad housing is a unjust. Thank you. Thanks so much, Fozia. And yeah, I'll just pick up from where Fozia um, from where Fozia spoke. So I'll sort of talk about our group um, and introduce us. And then those case studies, I guess those it's like really good to be here today. And thank you for inviting us. Um, because yeah, those two case studies are really recent. And in the group, um, we've always been aware of how health and housing are so strongly related. But more recently, we've come across the cases where families are like really like have really, really serious disabilities or vulnerabilities. Um, so in this case, yeah, the daughter was on dialysis and, and Veronica's case, the daughter was in a wheelchair with cerebral palsy. And these are two really recent cases. Um, and so we're seeing how and thankfully that, that they're both like they both won, they both, both families fought their cases with the group and they have won. Um, but um, in the group, we have been seeing more families come to the group with really serious um, health issues in really, really unsuitable housing. And I think this shows the inter how the housing crisis is deepening right now, because previously these very vulnerable families would have got, they would have been prioritized for council housing or better temporary accommodation. But the fact that these very vulnerable families are enduring really poor housing um, yeah, shows how the housing crisis is intensifying so much. Um, and of course, anybody who is homeless or suffering bad housing, um, yeah, because they're not getting the basic levels of support they need, but anyone who's homeless or suffering bad housing, it, it dramatically impacts on their health. But we are seeing an increase in um, homeless families with serious disabilities and serious health needs. And this is really alarming. Um, and this is why collaboration and action um, with health professionals is needed now more than ever. Um, so I'll speak 
speak a little bit about Hassel um, and then yeah, so we're a local community group um, who are made up of people who are directly affected by housing problems and we campaign together for high quality council homes that we need and deserve. Um, and in our campaigning, we also highlight the root causes of the housing crisis, which are high private rents, uh, the sell off of council housing, the racist no recourse to public funds and welfare cuts. Um, and this April, we're celebrating our ninth birthday, uh, which is a really big achievement for our group. And um, over these nine years, we've built up so much experience of housing problems, housing and homelessness law, um, and organizing um, and providing mutual support. And of course, um, experience of winning victories together. Um, most of our members are homeless, living in temporary accommodation or living in severely overcrowded private rented housing. Um, and this, all of this is some of the worst quality housing. So as well as overcrowding, they're often suffering severe disrepair or they've, they've got the threat of homelessness hanging up threat of eviction or homelessness because the housing is really insecure um, and reflecting some of those worst affected by the housing crisis our group is made up of migrant women and women of color and their families and we have lots of people from different nationalities it's really diverse men um, as Fozia said too many of our members don't speak English as their first language um, but we have other members of the group who help with translation and uh, many of our members are yet facing health issues, disabilities, some have been uh, victims of domestic violence, they sometimes have immigration um, difficulties and other poverty problems and so as if being homeless wasn't enough there's all these other vulnerabilities that our members are often dealing with as well and um, some of our members also work in the NHS so we have one member who is a nurse and we have one another uh, member of our group who's training to be a nurse and we have some members who are cleaners at NHS hospitals and also some care workers in our group as well um, and then yeah and so we run the group together um, with every people participating in whatever way they can and at the heart of our group are our regular meetings um, which have 60 to sometimes over 100 people attending um, and yeah in these meetings we share our experiences we share moral support uh, we help each other uh, we give each other rights information we plan protests and campaigns together we help people understand letters that they've got from the council or uh, section 21s from their landlord uh, we help to find good housing lawyers so yeah there's a few pictures too to get a sense of our group um, and so yeah, and we run these meetings in English and Spanish and with Fozia's help, we also have Somali and Arabic translation. And we've also been recently having some Tigrinya speakers, I think, um, helping with translation as well. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a really important part of what we do. Um, and then, um, yeah, so we've built this really strong network. Um, so every day across South L London, people are supporting each other, we're enforcing our rights and we're challenging injustice. Um, and if you're interested in reading a bit more about our approach, there's an LCAP booklet. Um, I'll put a link in the chat as well. And we use this as a guide when we started off our group. Um, and so just a few other quick things. So that's sort of an introduction to our group. Um, but. Yeah, through, through this practical support and collective action, we've had a lot of victories and we've seen how life-changing it is when families and individuals have finally have the secure council homes they need. And we've seen this, people will come back to the meetings and they will be physically transformed. Like it's like that they're a different person. And so seeing this time and time again, inspires us and motivates us to keep on fighting for the high quality council homes we all need. And I think sometimes on the left, there's a bit of stigmatizing of council housing or maybe a lack of understanding about it. So sometimes you'll read things about saying, someone saying it's subsidized housing in a derogatory way. Um, and I think even shelter 
who are a great housing charity who have incredible information on their website and a really good charity. They only started talking about social housing in the last few years. And I think that came about as a result of grassroots groups like Focus E15 Moms and then Hassle a little bit as well, um, who were pushing about council housing and social housing. So now Shelter are campaigning and talking about social housing, and that's really exciting. But for quite a few years, they were talking about this term of affordable housing, which doesn't really mean anything to anyone, and it's just not very useful. Um, so yeah, I think there is some kind of there's misunderstandings, but I think if we want to support those at the worst end of the housing crisis, we have to talk about and we have to campaign for council housing. And with that, an end to no recourse to public funds or else that racist rule will deny some of those most in need of it, council housing. Um, and as NHS workers and NHS campaigners um, who fight for, who rightly fight for a well-funded high quality national health service, in housing, council housing, it's nationalized housing. It's not for profit, it's accountable. You have the strongest rights in it. It's efficient if we need a retro fitting revolution it's efficient if we have lots of council housing and, and often the conditions are good and it's not to deny that there have been lots of issues recently in the press as well with the quality of social housing but overall you do have those better rights um, and the conditions um, are a lot better than some of the slum housing we've seen in the private rented sector and, and the, our members are enduring every day in the private rented sector and in temporary accommodation um, so yeah, it's been like often in our group, it has been transformational and that's why we keep on fighting for high quality council housing. Um, in terms of things we could do, um, we would love to talk with MEDAX members and anyone else interested in about how we can work together more. Um, like, yeah, as Fozzie has said, a good letter from a medical professional can just be so incredibly helpful for someone's housing case. Um, there's a hassle kid who wants to be a doctor in the group. So if anyone wants to help us with mentoring or work experience, we don't have any doctors in the group yet, but if you wanna help, um, that would be great. And um, yeah, we also, if if you need a break from medicine, we need help running kids activities. So we've got a group meeting this uh, next Thursday, the 14th in April, and it's half term. And um, we, yeah, we need some people to help run. We at Hassle Kids are the best. And so we need help with running kids activities, um, help amplify our campaigns on social media. And as it's our birthday, if you wanted to set up a four pound standing order to meet our basic costs. Um, at the moment, our costs are increasing for running the group. So, um, and we're, we're funded by our members or, or by supporters to keep our independence. Um, but yeah, we, yeah, it'd be great to talk more about how we can all work together and fight for the high quality council housing we need. So this is Edith and her family. The little girl, Megan, um, was the daughter that was recently in hospital with dialysis, but we were celebrating their new council homes together. Um, and that was, that was last week and that was really emotional um, and that was incredible. Um, so yeah, thanks. Incredible. Thank you so much to Izzy and Fossia for sharing uh, those really inspiring uh, stories. Um, and also just kind of brings home the reality of, of those living in temporary accommodation. And um, I suppose a lot of what's going on at the moment uh, can be very dark um, and we can often um, kind of lose hope. But uh, the speakers here today have done a brilliant job in sharing their successes and positive examples of how they're tackling um, economic injustice head on together. Um, so brilliant. Um, I'll just uh, to clarify uh, one more thing. We were expecting um, a fourth speaker to join us today, um, a member of our economic justice and health group. Um, unfortunately, um, due to last minute work commitments, they are unable to make it. Um, but if you are interested in learning 
um, a bit more about social welfare and its impact on health and uh, a bit more about universal credit, uh, we will be organising an event in a few weeks time. Um, definitely just keep an eye on that um, and sign up to uh, the um, WhatsApp group and email thread um, to hear a bit more.